It is Thursday, November 14th, and welcome back to the Derek Diamond Experience Podcast. Coming up on today's show, I'll be chatting with actress Hannah Race about her upcoming film Echoes of Fear, but first, I am joined along with returning guest of the podcast, the marketing director for Pensacon and also runs the Pensacola Movie Club, Mr. Julio Diaz. How are you today, sir? Hey, Derek. Doing well. How are you? Doing good. Uh, as we're recording this, I just got into Nashville about uh, an hour and a half ago. So a little tired, had a lot of a lot of driving. It was like a six and a half hour drive and I've been awake since 5 a.m., but we're, we're going to get through it. It's it's good. You know, I think everybody needs to just take a few days to kind of get away from their normalcy, you know, whether it be work, you know, life in general. It's it's good to just get away for a few days. Absolutely. I, I'm looking forward to eventually having time to do that myself, hopefully someday. Hopefully so. <laughs> <laughs> so we're here to talk about a film that both you and I have seen um, because I wanted to ask you about it. It's called The Lighthouse. And yes. this this played um, it opened in theaters a couple of weeks ago, and it was actually shown as part of the Pensacola Movie Club, which is interesting in the fact that for the most part, it's usually your bigger budget, you know, action or drama films that are selected. But um, I thought it was cool that the Lighthouse was selected to do that. So what in what goes into selecting a movie for the Pensacola Movie Club, and why did you pick the Lighthouse? I mean, it's a combination of things. Ultimately, I'm the arbiter of what we select for the movie club. I've been running it. Uh, gosh, when did uh, X-Men Days of Future Past come out? Because I think that was the first or close to the first film that we saw in the, in the movie club. So uh, four or five years, something like that. It's uh, It's been running pretty steadily. Uh, started when I was at the news journal and, uh, I've continued it since leaving the theater likes having us there and we enjoy doing it. So we keep doing it. Uh, Pensacola movie club on Facebook is where we keep that running. Uh, but ultimately I'm the one that decides I do kind of listen to the buzz of what people are excited about. We, I do listen to comments in the Facebook group. I, uh, I do also look at what else is opening that particular week because we do try to do a new film every week. So, you know, every once in a while, we'll do something that's a catch up of something that's been out a week or two. If there had been like two or three big releases in the same week, every once in a while, we'll try to do something like that. Or every once in a while, if there's not a real strong new release, we might do uh, some kind of retrospective screening like they had the, the re-release of The Shining several weeks ago. So we did that. Uh, but generally, it's it goes into trying to be a new release for the week. We like to be kind of a preview with that Thursday night advance screening. And uh, it's just kind of a combination of what's going to get the most audience, what are people talking about, and what do I personally most want to see. And I kind of put that lowest on the on the determination level, but there are a few times where it's just like, there's no way I'm sitting through, you know, uh, a good example this past week, Playing With Fire came out, this John Cena uh attempt to be the rock in a family comedy movie where there's four <laughs> kids running wild in, in a fire station. No, I'm not sitting through that. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. I think that would make two of us. I, I'm sure it's, it's, it, I'm sure it's fun in its own way, but as far as going to a theater to see it, I'd have to pass on that one. Yeah. No knock on anybody that, that's interested in something like that. There's that's why there's all kinds of different movies and, 
different experience for everyone. It's all cinema and we won't get into too much about that. I don't, I hope, but, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's all there for people that enjoy it and no knock on anybody that enjoys what they enjoy. Yeah, for sure. But, uh, but yeah, in this case, in this particular case, this movie had, had a lot of a buzz about it. Uh, there's a lot of critical excitement about it, a lot of Oscar buzz about it. Uh, and, uh, I, I, don't know if I can quite call myself a fan of the director's previous film. Uh, director, of course, is Robert Eggers, and his previous film was The Witch, or some people like to call it The Vavitch, uh, because of the old English-style title that they used on that. Uh, I, I definitely found a lot that was very interesting about that film, but in the ultimate end of it, I'm not sure whether I enjoyed it or not. But I was eager to see what he did next, because he is such a singular filmmaker and has such unique creative vision that even I knew if, even if I didn't like something, I was going to get something out of it. And so I was very eager to see what he was going to come up with with this film. Yeah. And I, I knew little to nothing about Robert Eggers. I just remember seeing, I think you posted something on Facebook because I didn't see it when it first came out. I saw you post something about it, I think on Facebook and I just happened to have a free night and I was like, you know what? I'm going to go check out the lighthouse and, yeah, I guess this is where we'll really dive into you know the meat of the film discussion. But I enjoyed it in the sense that one, I just thought it was a really well done film in general, and number two, I enjoyed the fact that it was something that you don't really see in theaters that often, and that's a a, a independent character driven film. It's billed as a a horror film, but I would classify it more as a suspense myself. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a more psychological horror. This is not something you go to if you're looking for jump scares or slasher or, you know, some of the things that some people might traditionally think of as as horror. I think there's definitely a horror to it, but uh, it's not a, you know, a Friday the 13th or something like that. Right. Uh, yeah, and, but I agree with what you said. Uh, I, I think it's a very singular vision, much the way The Witch was, but in a completely different way. And The, the Witch could be seen as a horror film, too. Uh, it's kind of interesting. There's a couple of directors that are doing this more cerebral, visionary, auteur-driven kind of horror films that kind of harken back in a lot of ways to the, the auteur area of the 70s when you were seeing films like Rosemary's Baby and uh, The Exorcist and things like that come up that, uh, you know, would kind of keep you questioning what was going on through the whole movie. And they aren't just, you know, oh, there's a bunch of kids and they're in a cabin and there's some kind of killer out there, that kind of thing. Uh, the other uh, director I'll mention in the same vein is Ari Oster, who did uh, Hereditary and this, uh, this year had Midsummer out, which is also a fantastic movie and a very unique vision. Eggers just goes and does his own thing and takes you to a different kind of world. And, and I really like that about his work. Well, and even diving into the very beginning of the movie, you, I knew it was in black and white, but the thing that really drew me in from a technical aspect is that it was actually shown in four by three format. And for the more common term, it's the old square full screen. Like you'd be watching on an old TV from, you know, up until the early 2000s. So that really caught me off guard, but in a good way. Like it really sold the fact that this is an old fashioned style film. And, you know, it takes place in 
the late 1800s stars Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe, who I thought had great on-screen chemistry. And I will confess, this is only the second movie I've ever seen Robert Pattinson in. And seeing it, I thought that he's much improved as an actor since his Twilight days. Is that what you had previously seen him in, or, or yes. did you see him in something else? No, it was it was the first Twilight movie. Did you not see Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire? He was in that. He was Cedric Diggory. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. Okay, so I've seen him in three things. Yeah, that's kind. Of, that was kind of his first breakthrough role, and then he got Twilight after okay. that. Okay. Uh, I I will admit I have not seen any of the Twilight movies, so I was dragged to the first one, but that's a completely different story. Yeah, I know people get up in arms about that. I know there's a lot. There's a lot of people who've gotten up in arms about him being cast as Batman. They want to bag on him. They want to bag on Kristen Stewart for their acting ability. And I would say that those movies are not indicative of their of either of their acting ability. They're not indicative of anybody's acting ability, really, who's in them. There's a lot of other people in there who are very good actors that aren't very good in those movies because they aren't very good movies and they're stylized to be a certain kind of thing that isn't necessarily what they would do in other films. I just don't think it's fair to judge anybody uh, by their participation in those films. Uh, it, when they've gone on to do such interesting stuff since then, Kristen Stewart has done a lot of really interesting stuff since then. Uh, and I'm, you know, I'm interested to see what she continues to do. Uh, maybe not so much Charlie's Angels. That's a bit of a weird choice. I'm surprised to see her doing that, but some of the other stuff she's done is very good. And, and Pattinson has done some amazing work, and this is definitely evidence of it. I think both he and Defoe do Oscar-caliber work in this movie, and I very much want to see them both nominated. I'm not sure which you call the lead or which you call the supporting, but they are the reason to see this film over and above the aesthetic, which is great, too, and it does set the whole play. The aspect ratio is something I noticed right off the, the bat as well, and it's part of that putting you into this world and focusing you on this world for two hours or about whatever it is. Uh, but the two performances are just riveting, just riveting. Absolutely. And as I said before, the two of them play off each other extremely well. You know, Defoe, everything I've seen him in, I've really enjoyed. So him along with, you know, seeing what he did with Robert Pattinson was just really good. And there's something about stories like this that, intrigue me in the sense of being almost solely character driven, whether you focus on just one central character and they're alone or just interacting with inanimate objects. You know, I'll use Tom Hanks and Castaway as an example. The majority of that movie, he's by himself, but he drove it through his performance. And these two, I mean, there are other characters that make brief appearances in the movie, but for the most part, it's just the two, you know, playing off each other and slowly losing their mind from, being isolated from the rest of the world, just essentially being stuck in this lighthouse. And it's really fascinating to watch their progression and their mentality and, and you know, perspective change as the film progresses. Well, and I think that's one of the interesting questions that the, the film posits too, is whether this is even actually two people, whether they are, whether or not those two characters are actually the same person. Mm -hmm. which is, has been a subject of great debate uh, amongst those who have seen the film. Uh, I'm not sure where I come in on that. Uh, it's certainly possible that they are the same person, but I kind of, I kind of think they are separate people. 
I, I think they're both going mad in their own ways. Uh, and I think that it's a really interesting depiction of madness. Uh, I think it, you know, this has been a year for riveting depictions of madness on screen. Uh, but I, I think these two are, are the better ones. And I'm going to be very disappointed to some extent if uh, when we come around to Oscar times, the, they give it to Joaquin Phoenix rather than one of these two gentlemen, as great as he is in The Joker. This is just next level work. Yeah, no, I, I would agree with that. And the funny thing about that theory is that both characters have the same name, you know, because it's revealed right. that, you know, and it is kind of a spoiler in a way, but Robert Pattinson, his character's name is Winslow, but then it's revealed that his real name is Thomas and Willem Dafoe's character is also named Thomas. So that would play into it, I guess, in some way, but I, I'm with you in the sense that I like to think they're two separate characters that are stuck together and just go crazy. And just e even the, you know, the, the references with the seagull and everything and how that comes around to the very end of the film, because it's almost like progressively throughout the movie, you see more and more seagulls show up up until, you know, like from the very beginning when uh, Winslow is carrying the, I think the coal into the, the shack or whatever, and the seagull won't let him by. And Willem Dafoe says, right. you know, it's bad luck to kill a seagull. And then things happen and they get progressively worse from there. Well, and, and you know, it goes back to that kind of you know imagery, of course, will remind, will remind a lot of people of the rhyme of the ancient mariner and the albatross and, and that sort of thing. There's a very similar kind of thematic thing going on there. Uh, so, you know, the symbolism there is if you know your, your what is that, mid 18th century English poetry. Mm -hmm. Do you remember that from high school or, or college? Because I think we all probably had to read it in a literature class at some point. Uh, the, that's, there's some commonality. Of course, not an albatross in this case, it's a gull, but that, the whole imagery of the seabirds and the bad luck and the, what that means in seafaring life is, is, is the key to what's going on here. There's also a key to whether they're going mad from the isolation or whether there's something about the place and about in particular the light mm -hmm. that is, is causing their madness. Whether there's something they're seeing in the light within the lighthouse or whether that's in their heads. Well, there's even a reference to um, Willem Dafoe's character, his previous apprentice. He said, you know, he died shortly after he went insane. And you wonder back to that whole sentiment, is it the isolation or is there something, you know, almost supernatural or mysterious in a way that's causing them to go insane? And it's referenced, you know, with the light up until the very end of the film. So it's, it's definitely, it's, a, it's what I call a thinker. I was just thinking constantly throughout this whole film of, you know, what is really going on here? Yeah, well, and within the film, there's certainly imagery to lend to both arguments there's there's the imagery of the the mermaid that appears more than once uh there's the imagery of some kind of tentacled creature uh that pops up but you don't really know whether that's real or if that's in one or the other man's minds or pro perhaps both of their minds uh so yeah you're gonna leave this kind of saying what did i just watch and even it's been a few weeks since I've seen it. There's still some thought process of what did I see? What, what actually happened here? And 
there are times when you go to a movie like that and you come out of it and that makes it because it was not a bad, it was not a well-made film. This is not the case. This is a very well-made film. This is the kind of film that keeps you thinking about it and keeps you pondering it in a good way, not in a what the heck were they thinking here way. They, they totally failed to to make a point here. There's, there's all kinds of things that you'll absorb from this film, but I think that you will walk away still kind of feeling very unsettled and very not, not knowing what to make of it all. And it's one that I definitely want to see again, because I feel like there might be things that I even missed that might lend itself one way or another to maybe this is what happened. Cause like I said, I was constantly thinking throughout the whole film, what's causing this thing to happen. And it's one that, you know, I don't think the film is for everyone. I think it definitely has its its niche genre, which brings me to a subject that I've been thinking about really ever since I saw The Lighthouse, because um, the newest Terminator came out and did very poorly at the box office, which was unfortunate because I actually really liked the movie. Do I did too, actually. Do you see... I will say more specifically the movie theater experience. Do you see more of these niche films coming out? Because it seems like unless it's Avengers or, you know, even star Wars now to a, maybe even a slightly lesser extent, it seems like a lot of films don't do nearly as well in the theater anymore. Well, I mean, that's, that's kind of the question of where we are right now in, in cinema. It kind of does hearken to, I, you know, I made an allusion to it earlier, you know, the, the argument that's going on with, uh, you know, visionary, incredibly talented directors like Martin Scorsese and Francis Ford Coppola looking down their nose at Marvel movies and saying that's not cinema and it's basically just a, a roller coaster ride and it's not art, uh, which I don't agree with at all. But you do have more people only wanting to come out if it's some kind of big spectacle making the decision I can wait for that to come on Netflix and sit in my house and watch it. Uh, but you do have people that are hungry to see these kinds of, you know, cinematic visions and theaters too. Uh, I think for the part of AMC, not that I owe them any specific plug or anything, but they are the only theater cha- chain in Pensacola. So we're kind of dependent on them. They, they have created this AMC artisan films program where they are trying to program some more, for lack of a better term, alternative fare. Uh, it's been kind of a running joke among some of our friends. Well, Artisan Fair, you know, AMC Artisan means it's not Marvel or Star Wars. Everything else is AMC Artisan <laughs> Fair. That's not really true. They are trying to, you know, support independent visions and things like that. But they've also had things like uh, a movie that I thought was a lot of fun, but is by no means a, you know, high-minded artistic achievement, uh, Ready or Not, that came out earlier this year. Had a lot of fun with that movie, but it's not anything anybody's going to be talking about for awards and prestige. Uh, and that was, but that was considered AMC artisan. And so is the lighthouse. So is uh, the farewell, which came out earlier this year, which is a great uh, like comic drama with a, a large Asian family and uh, starring Aquafina. And it's another one of these little small independent films uh, that has some very interesting things to say and some great performances and is not, you know, a $350 million, you know, blockbuster kind of thing. 
So there, there's room for everything, I think. And I think that the theaters are making an effort to do everything. Uh, I think where we are seeing ground is some of these franchises that have uh, been around for a while and had their ups and downs and people aren't willing to just be patient and sit through the downs anymore. And I think that's what happened to Terminator, uh, which is a shame because Dark Fate is actually the best Terminator movie since Terminator 2, easily. Oh, no doubt. Which I, which I know is not, uh, you know, strong praise given what's come between there, but uh, I think this was the, the sequel that they always should have done. This is the sequel that we always should have had to Terminator 2, and it just kind of stinks that we had to go through, what was it, three bad Terminator movies to get there, and now nobody cares anymore. Yeah, I think it's definitely with Terminator, I think it's a case of franchise fatigue, and when you burn your fans so many times, eventually they're going to stop coming. And I think that's what's going to be interesting about Rise of Skywalker, because I have no doubt that it's still going to make a lot of money at the box office, but I'm curious as to what the opening weekend's going to be like, because people really did not like The Last Jedi. Now, I agree with some of the points, I disagree with some of them, but... I still thought overall it was a good movie. And then you had the solo spinoff that was very polarizing among the diehard Star Wars fans. Like, I love the Star Wars franchise, but they have some of the worst fans that I can think of when it comes to movie franchises. Oh, oh, I I am a diehard lifelong since I was six years old or whatever it was when the first film came out, Star Wars fans fan. And uh, about 90% of the time these days, I just hate Star Wars fans. They're just some of some of them. It's not all of them. Let's be 100% clear about this. It is a vocal minority, but the ones that are bad are just the worst. Yeah, just, just the absolute worst is, you know, if you don't see it my way, then you don't know what you're talking about. Uh, I personally love The Last Jedi. It was time to go in a different direction. It, it is time to not keep doing the same things i also loved the force awakens i don't think i don't buy the criticism of that that it was just a remake of a new hope it yes there are similar things but that's kind of part of the hero's journey that was the basis for the whole star wars franchise to begin with is that it is cyclical so you know i i'm very eager to see how it's going to end i you know don't know if i'll end up liking it or not but I've at least liked something in every Star Wars movie that's ever been made. There's no Star Wars movie where I feel there's absolutely no redeeming quality to it. Uh, that there's no Star Wars movie. I think the only one I have only seen once at this point is Solo, and I, I will watch Solo again at some point. I think Solo has pro- a good amount of problems, and I think a big part of it was them just deciding to scrap the whole thing and refilm it. Uh, another big part of it is the cinematography, but that's a whole nother story. Uh, but I think there was a lot to like in Solo, too. Yeah, no, I, I would totally agree with that. And yeah, it's going to be very interesting to see what happens you know, with Star Wars and even what happens with the franchise after that. So I guess in closing, as we start to wrap up, I just touched on you know, the, the possible future of cinema with these upcoming you know, niche genre type films. Do you see movie theaters specifically going more in that direction? Because we're even seeing it now with Netflix and you mentioned Scorsese, you know, his film, The Irishman is going to be on Netflix at the end of the month, which is, yeah, 
which is very Where, interesting. I know, I, and you know, that's kind of the the business question that we're seeing right now is a lot of this has to do less with audience demand and less with the artistic side of it and more with the money side of it. What's happening with the theaters right now is I think they're willing to to program both artistic prestige material and the big blockbusters. Of course, the big blockbusters are always going to get on the most screens because that's what they're the most demand is there for. It is, you know, kind of it is a business. They want to make money, but they'll make money with whatever they think can make money. The what you're seeing now is companies like Netflix and Amazon that are willing to sink a lot of money into making prestige films. Uh, Scorsese's film, The Irishman, is a great example. This is a hundred and thirty million dollar movie. Uh, most prestige indie films are, you know, twenty million dollars or less. But Scorsese wanted to use the, ironically enough, the de-aging technique that was pioneered by Marvel in their films mm -hmm. uh, so that he could use the same actors through the entire movie at every age he wanted to have them out in the film. So he wanted to be able to have a young De Niro in the film. Well, that costs money. So Netflix apparently was the only studio that was willing to give him $130 million to make the film. Well, then the turnaround that you have is that there are theater chains like AMC that will refuse to carry those movies, even they, though they do do a theatrical release, uh, because they feel like it's taking people out of their theaters and taking away their opportunity to make money. Uh, so it, there's a trade-off there. We had the same issue with Roma last year, uh, Alfonso Cuaron's film, which was a beautiful film, uh, but it never played here locally in Pensacola because we only have AMC theaters and AMC will not work with Netflix on this. Uh, I know Eddie Murphy's new film, My Name is Dolomite, is out, uh, which is also getting a lot of Oscar buzz, and uh, especially for the acting and the directing, uh, and uh, that we won't get a chance to see that theatrically either. You can only see it on Netflix. So, I mean, I, I think the theaters, you know, the theaters, I, you know, I don't, I don't work for a theater or anything like that, but from what I'm seeing, of course, there's always been theaters that specialize in art house fair, revival fair, that sort of thing. But the big cinema, cinemaplexes, it's not a matter of, them not being willing to program artistic films it's them wanting the exclusive window on that that before it goes to any kind of home streaming etc where the streaming companies are like well yeah but we're putting this money in ultimately to get people to subscribe to our service right it's going to be very interesting over the next couple of years because you just touched on it there's so many streaming services with Netflix Hulu now it seems like networks are wanting to do their own exclusive streaming. We've got Disney Plus, which, you know, when this episode comes out, will already be, you know, available for everyone. It seems, unfortunately, like the movie theater industry is dying a slow death, which is unfortunate because going to a theater to watch a movie is one of my favorite things to do. But we'll see what happens. Yeah, I don't think it's ever going to, at least not anytime real soon, that it's going to outright die. People still want to have those communal experiences. They just want to, with expensive, as expensive as tickets are, they want to know they're getting their money's worth. And that's why you see people you know, feeling like, okay, I know what a Marvel movie is going to be. I know I'm going to have a good time at a Marvel movie. I have no problems with going out and dropping $15 to see it in IMAX because I'm going to appreciate the spectacle and I'm going to appreciate what it is and I'm going to have a good time. Whereas they're, they're a little more dubious about going to something else and they might just say, Oh, I'll wait to see that at home. 
No, I, and I'm hoping that's the case too, you know, because like I said, going to a theater, I have so many great memories from when I was a kid and even now up until, you know, experiences this year. It's one of my favorite things to do. So hopefully it won't just outright die out. But um, in closing, is there anything you want to plug like Pensacon or the Pensacola Movie Club? Uh, well, I certainly can plug both. Uh, Pensacola Movie Club, uh, if you join Facebook, or we have a Facebook group on Facebook, of course, because we're elsewhere, you have a Facebook group. Uh, Pensacola Movie Club, sign up there. That's where we talk about all of our upcoming screenings. Sometimes we get to do some giveaways and contests and things like that. So anytime we have something like that, it'll be mentioned there. Uh, we usually do a screening almost every week on Thursday night. There's some exceptions to that, but that's pretty typical. Uh, and we see a new movie just about every week. Uh, I think this week we'll probably be seeing Ford v. Ferrari. Uh, I know Frozen 2 is coming up. Of course, we will be doing Star Wars when that comes out, etc. Uh, but we're also looking... I've been waiting for Jojo Rabbit to come out because that's one I definitely want to do. Same. Uh, has played elsewhere. hasn't played here locally yet. Uh, so, you know, it's always a mix of films. Uh, as far as Pensacon, Pensacon, of course, is coming up February 28th through March 1st, 2020. Uh, we're taking over all of downtown Pensacola, centered at the Pensacola Bay Center with events at... Pensacola Grand Hotel, the Sanger Theater, the Rex Theater, uh, the Pensacola Little Theater. This year, we're also going to be expanding into the uh, UWF Historic Trust era area with uh, some events in Museum Plaza and the Voices of Pensacola building. So we continue to grow. Uh, we're going to uh, continue to be booking guests. Where we've got uh, some big announcements coming up in the near future that we're, we think people are going to be really excited about. And uh, we will have another huge weekend of fun for everybody. Fantastic. Well, Julio, thank you so much for taking the time to do the podcast. This was fun. Oh, no problem, Derek. Thank you for asking. Stick around for my conversation with actress Hannah Race. Thanks for listening. Happy to be joined with my special guest this week, one of the stars of the film Echoes of Fear, Miss Hannah Race. How are you today? Hey, it's great to be here, Derek. Thank you. I'm doing great today. Awesome. Awesome. It's funny because something I feel like, and this is very random, but it's something I've been thinking about the last few days, daylight savings time. Is it dark out in California right now? It's getting there. Not quite dark. Okay. I've always, <laughs> I've been curious, you know, about the West Coast and dealing with daylight savings. Cause I know here, cause I, I live in Florida and it's 530 my time and it feels like it's nine o'clock at night. Okay, yes. I've been struggling with that, too. By 5.30 here, it's going to be dark. <laughs> yeah, it's pitch black and feels like it's 9 o'clock, and it's obnoxious. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think everyone hates this. <laughs> yeah, I think so, too. I haven't met anyone who does like it. <laughs> Why aren't we changing it? I uh, know. I think Arizona's got it right because they don't recognize daylight savings. Yes, yes, they do. So I wanted to talk to you uh, here on the show today about your your new film, Echoes of Fear. Uh, before we get to that, what was it that initially you know made you want to uh, become an actress? Well, I started at a really young age. I started ballet when I was about four, and then I started community theater when I was about five. Um, I was in quite a few different plays as kind of a little, like a background character. <laughs> I was in Into the Woods, A Secret Garden, quite a few of them. And then when I was nine years old, I got the role of Sandy in Greece, and I fell in love. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm the star. <laughs> 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 uh, 
around that time. And that's kind of where my passion took off is with the skating. And I did that for seven years until it, I had a career ending injury in high school. And, you know, I was really into my academics then. I went into college, but after college, I kind of was in that space again where I didn't have a creative outlet. I'd grown up doing, I was also a cheerleader. I did cheerleading, ballet, skating, acting, and I felt like I needed that in my life again. So I went ahead and started taking acting classes and I'm so glad I did because it's such a, it's so cathartic acting. Yeah, from what little experience I've had with acting, I haven't acted in a film, but I have taken some acting classes. And it's something that it leaves you very vulnerable because you have to pour emotions out, you know, depending on the role, of course. But it puts yeah. you in a completely different space. And you, I don't know if you've done this before, but you feel like you like tap into like past experiences, like say if you're playing a dramatic role, if you have some type of incident that happened in your life that you can kind of pull from how you felt at that time and use it in your performance. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's amazing. It, I respect anybody who does it because I know the first class that I ever took, I was absolutely petrified and have, yeah. are still petrified to do it. So I, I give credit to you know anyone who chooses to follow that profession. So that that's awesome. So you you were drawn to really the art of performing at an early age. Oh yeah, I loved the feeling of performing, and I think I'm just a naturally creative person. So I'm always kind of searching for that outlet. When it wasn't acting, I was painting and sketching, and there's just something really relaxing about it to me. Yeah, it can almost be you know therapeutic in a way. Yes, yes, definitely. That's awesome. So kind of transitioning into the film Echoes of Fear, uh, is it one of your first uh, acting performances that you've done as far as being in a film? It's my first feature film, and it's my first, um, I'm one of the leads, I'm not the lead. Uh, so in those aspects, yes. But I have been in a few short films, I've been in a, a pilot, I've been in one episode of a web series, and then the acting class that I started taking when I started acting again is a film acting workshop with Clue Gulliger. And what his classes are, are there these intense three-day workshops that you do Friday night, all day Saturday, and all day Sunday. And you're essentially filming a short film every single time. I've taken a lot of those. And, you know, each time you get the full, like, set experience. They have the camera, they have lighting, they have sound, they have everything that you see on a full-fledged set. And so I do feel like I have a lot of experience that my IMDb doesn't necessarily show. I'd actually never heard of that concept before. I think that's brilliant because yeah. you can you can sit around in a class and you can act out, you know, a few lines to your partner in the scene, but it's a completely different environment when you're on set when you have to, you know, deal with camera and sets you know, prop pieces and things like that. So do they even go through the whole process of saying, you know, you have to hit your mark and so on and so forth? Like they literally go through the entire process? Yeah. In addition to the actual acting techniques that he goes through, um, that's what a lot of the exercises are about, are hitting your mark, finding your light. He talks a lot about creating business in the scene. He'll have us try out different accents. I mean, and he's great at explaining the perspectives of the editors, the directors, the lighting person, 
the the people who are doing sound. He's he's amazing at giving you so much perspective on the entire process. And for me, that really helps as an actress because I feel like I can take all of that into consideration when I'm on a set. Well, and you know what to expect too. You're not just, you know, walking onto a set and you're like, oh crap, there's a camera guy here. There's three yeah. or four PAs. There's sound guy and so on and so forth. It, it preps you for the full experience. That's great. Yeah, That's I awesome. definitely feel very well prepared. And like I'm in my element when I'm on set. And it's because of that course, I believe. That's great. That's yeah. really cool. So as far as Echoes of Fear goes, how did you initially find out about this film? And then how did you get your part? So that acting course with Kluge Villager I was just talking about is it's also a great way of networking. You know, I'm meeting a lot of actors in that class. And one of them referred me to a friend of hers who was doing a, just a table reading for his film. And I went to that table read. He was great, but they weren't moving forward with that film quite yet. I got a call from him, though, and he said, hey, I have these friends. He was speaking about Brian and Lowe, and they're creating a film, and they need this, like, blonde 20-something actress. And I just thought you were perfect for it. So do you mind if I send along your information? I was like, yeah, that's totally fine. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, so from there, I set up the audition with Brian and Lowe, and... The first one went great, although I had a migraine, so that wasn't great. <laughs> but um, but apparently they liked my performance enough that I got two more callbacks after that. And on those, I got to actually perform with Trista, which was great because we had chemistry from the get-go. Well, and that's important, too. You know, is, and when you're especially in a lead role, to have the chemistry with you know, someone you're going to be on screen with a lot is is important. Oh, yeah, it, it, it really is. I believe that if both people are open to it, you can create that chemistry. Like, I don't want to say it's not hard to create because with some people, you're just not going to have it. But I definitely felt that coming from Trista, which was great. We were both giving it our all to really form that best friend connection. Well, I think it came across, you know, on screen too. any scenes that you guys did together. It, it was like you guys had you know been friends since you were kids. Thank you. I'm really glad that it shows through. No, that, definitely. So you get the part. What was it like being on set for a feature as opposed to, you know, being on set for a short? I mean, I know obviously it, it takes longer because a feature is a longer film, but is there anything that really stood out to you as far as being vastly different than your experiences with, you know, being on set for a short? Some of the, I've done two shorts and the shorts that I was on, were much larger productions. There were a lot of people there. And Echoes, amazingly enough, I mean, on most days, there were five of us there. It was Trista and I, Brian and Lowe, and Tyler, who was kind of doing everything. <laughs> and uh, it was just really cool that, you know, you're getting the same experience with just so few people. And it can be done when people have the passion and the focus and the drive you can create something really amazing with just a few people. Well, especially on the set of an indie film, whatever role you're in, you can usually find yourself wearing multiple hats as opposed yes. to a big budget where you have one person who's strictly doing one thing than another person who's doing strictly one other thing. If you're on an indie film, you know, short film or even feature, you might be writer, director, slash producer, slash 
whatever else the case may be. So it it really is in a way a very you know a a learning moment because you're doing so many things that it preps you for for future opportunities. I think. Yes, it really is, and I think in Kluger's workshop, he drives home the point of staying in your department, never offer anything really like be the actor if you're the actor you're just the actor you need to stay there but on set you know there were times that called for you know helping out a little bit and I think that was totally fine and I think Brian and Lowe were amazing at kind of letting us be like well here this might be a little continuity issue here or there it, it ran very smoothly and they're great people that's awesome and that that's important too when you're on set is to have that you're that camaraderie and that, you know, just that, that fun feeling because you're on set. And I, I say this to almost every guest that I have on the podcast. It's like, why would you want to be miserable on a set where you're shooting for many hours a day for many days in a row? You know, you should try to make it fun and collaborate with people because that's the best part about filmmaking is the collaboration. They're yes, all little moving parts and one giant machine like it takes all of them to make it work from director all the way down to to PA yes even with the limited amount of sets that I've been on and films that I've been in it's just I have come across those people that just make things difficult and it's like why would you do that I am so glad that on Echoes of Fear I didn't have that experience at all everyone was really easy to work with and it just made everything run so smoothly did you have any big learning moments when you were on set for Echoes? Um, I mean, I think in general, because I was, I'm very similar to Steph. I think one of the things that I learned that's huge for me is that I'm, I am being put in these roles as the nice girl, the supportive girl. You know, I haven't really done much outside of that, which I would love to. But it has taught me that you have to, you can't just act like yourself. You have to add a little something in there. You have to create a backstory, even if the person is so similar to you, so that there's this little spark there. You know, it exists on film. <laughs> you can tell when you're when you're not delving deep enough into that character. Yeah, no, I, I would definitely agree with that too. It is even when, you know, your character is essentially yourself, but I'd say like with the volume turned from two all the way up to 10, if it's an exaggerated person of yourself, you still have to add that little bit of a dynamic. And that to me is, you know, what I think is what little experience I've had is the fun part of acting is that you get to be someone that you're normally not. Yes. Yes. And I would love to do more roles that are complete opposite of me because I, that's very cathartic. And you just get to like let it all out. It feels really good. Mm -hmm. But um, unfortunately, I haven't done a ton of that. I would love to. I have in class, just not on uh, projects. Is there a role that in your mind is like, I'd really love to play that type of a character? Well, within the horror genre, I would love to be, I would love to play somebody like Trista's character in this, like Alyssa where you're, you're going through a ton of emotions. You have many levels you can create and, and you get to let it all out. You get to let that big scream out, you know? Um, but outside of the horror genre, I mean, I'm loving working in comedy right now. That's a ton of fun. That's my, my, the current short that I'm working on is a comedy. 
and I feel very comfortable in dramas as well. Now, that's the cool thing about acting, too, is, you know, you mentioned comedy, horror, drama. There's so much variety that's out there. And if you can show that you can do it all, then, hey, more job opportunities, right? Yes, definitely. Yeah, it's also it, it where you are in your personal life definitely plays into what your strong suits are in acting, you know? When I first started acting, it was, like, really easy for me to be, like, the flirty girl, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's very easy to act with men and just as a love interest. And I think I, that would still be really fun for me. But I don't know. As you grow in your personal life, you grow as an actor, too. That's true. Part of the process. That's true. And that, that actually makes me think of, of Kevin Smith, you know, with the films that he's made. When he made his original Clerks film back in the early 90s, he was in his 20s. So he said that that film is very much a reflection of his life while he was in his 20s. Then he made yeah. Clerks 2 in the mid-2000s when he was in his 30s. That kind of showed the evolution of his life, you know, indirectly through his characters of where he was when he was in his 30s. And his new film is when he's in his 40s. So you, you do have that. When you watch people who have been actors for... A long time you can see the evolution in a way of them personally through their characters I think yeah totally I completely agree and as far as diving into the story of Echoes of Fear and I don't want to give you know too much away because I don't want to spoil the whole thing I, I really enjoyed it because it, for one believe it or not I'm not really a huge horror fan but I've been kind of conquering that fear over the last couple of weeks because my friends have pretty much forced me to. But I've I've grown to actually like... It's still not my favorite genre because I don't like to get scared, but I appreciate the genre for what it does. And it makes me interested, you know, to actually make something in that genre. So what was it like actually making a horror film? Because I feel like it's become a popular genre to make. Right. Well, I mean, my role in this as Steph, Steph's not having the same experiences in this as Alyssa is. She, Trista definitely got to, I think she got that full horror film experience. Mm -hmm. And as Steph, I mean, there, there is the climax where, again, I don't want to give anything away either, <laughs> but, um, I'm in the thick of it with her, which was really cool. That's one of my favorite parts of the film because I actually got to experience some of the grittiness that. And that was what I was going to ask you about was the, you being involved with the climax of it. Cause it, it does involve the both of you. Yes. Yes. So that was one of the most exciting parts. Cause I'm like, okay, here's the meat of it, you know? And I loved everything before that too, but it was all pretty lighthearted because that's Steph's role in this film is to kind of bring some levity to the situation. Yeah, but I can imagine you know, even just being on set for it and watching everything unfold had to have been a lot of fun. Oh, yeah, we definitely, I think we did a really good job of kind of, you know, you're on set for so long, there's these, you're on, you're sitting around for hours sometimes when they're setting up, setting things up, and you start having your personal conversations and stuff. But I think we did a really good job on this set of just kind of keeping that mood going. I know Trista did. She, she was in it as Alyssa, even in those times between, which was great. It was easier for me because my role is a little more lighthearted. So 
set to keep it light. <laughs> Which you have to when you're on set for that long amount of time. You mentioning, oh, yeah. you mentioning the the waiting around. The, it makes me think of what I call the hurry up and wait approach when you're on yes. set. It's one of those <laughs> that you know. I, I tell people when they're about to go on set for the first time. You know, a lot of it is just the hurry up and wait approach, and they ask me what that is. It's you wait around, and then when it's time for you to do something, you know, you got to go and you got to do it. So, yeah, when they're ready, they're ready, and you got to be over there in a second and be on. Yeah. Uh, So, when you first read the the script for for Echoes, like, did the story kind of draw you in? And I ask that because when it comes to the genre specifically, I like watching the story unfold because horror movies always have that twist. And there is one here that I won't give away because it was one that I honestly wasn't expecting. Oh, nice. Were, were you drawn into the story of the film? Cause it, the story is actually, you know, pretty fascinating and in a way kind of heartbreaking. It, it really is heart heartbreaking. And it's really at the end there, you know, I think it's very, it's based in reality and it it can hit home for a lot of people, I think. But when I was reading the script, I was, I was not expecting that twist at the end at all. I was pretty shocked myself and I thought it was going a different direction. And I thought that Steph was going to be different than she winds up being Mm -hmm. in the end. (laughs) Yeah. I I was thinking the same thing. I was like, there might be another twist in the road here at some point, but you know, it, it, it was it was a good twist, though. I I, yes. I I will say that. Yeah, I'm glad you liked it. <laughs> no, I, I very much enjoyed it. I, I especially love watching indie film just because I know what what it takes to make it happen. And I know it's a lot of work, a lot of hours, but I can imagine the you guys felt very happy and it was a very rewarding experience for the final product. Oh, yeah. It was a labor of love. And I know it was it was like Brian and Lowe's baby. This project was extremely important to them. And so it was really fulfilling as an actor, but it was also really fulfilling to be able to bring to life what meant so much to them. And I'm so happy it's getting the attention that it's getting. That's awesome. Yeah, that's great. So what's next for you now that Echoes is done? Do you have any other um, projects or anything you want to talk about? I'm filming right now. I'm doing a comedy short, and I believe it it may become a pilot, but I'm not sure. I know there was some talk about that. And kind of like Echoes of Fear, it's a group horror film. It centers around three girls who are out to get revenge on one of their ex-boyfriends. <laughs> and it's, a, it's really funny. It's really great. I'm working for, with some amazing people. Nice. That, that's a funny storyline to me. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, again, that's the thing with movies is that you get to do exaggerated versions of reality. It's just you, you mentioning that plot line. I'm like, I bet that could be pretty great. Oh, yeah. We've filmed some really fun scenes. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait for it to be out there. That's awesome. Uh, last question uh, before I let you go. Do you have any websites or social media that you'd like to plug so the listeners can follow you? Uh, yes, the ones that I update regularly are Instagram, and that's Hannah Reese Official. And then I'm also Hannah Reese Official on Facebook. Fantastic. Well, Hannah, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. I really enjoyed 
watching Echoes of Fear and good luck to whatever comes up with you next. I'm so glad you liked it. And thank you so much for having me, Derek. Thanks again to both Julio Diaz and Hannah Race for coming on the show to talk about The Lighthouse and Echoes of Fear, respectively. And for next week's show, I'll be talking with director Nathan Ives about his documentary Somewhere in the Middle, which is a really fascinating story about the measure of success when it comes to the entertainment industry. Really good documentary and a really good conversation. So be sure to come back next week and check out that fun episode. As far as what I'll be reviewing, I'm not entirely sure yet. I might be reviewing the first two episodes of The Mandalorian, or I might be reviewing Ford v. Ferrari. So have to figure that out, and we'll include that with next week's show as well. If you want to follow the show on social media, I'm on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Podcast. If you want to check out past episodes of the show, I'm on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. Just search for The Derek Diamond Experience, and don't forget to leave a review. And of course, thank you as always to my close friends, the Unicorn Wranglers, for providing the theme music for the podcast. Their songs Late Night drive Through" and Light and Jazzy can be found on their latest album, Greetings from the Space Van, which is available on Apple Music, Google Play, and Spotify. That's going to do it for this week's show. Thank you once again to Hannah and Julio. Enjoy the rest of your week. Have a safe and fun weekend. Thank you for tuning in to another awesome episode of the Derek Diamond Experience. I'm your host, Derek Diamond, and we'll see you guys back here next Thursday. Thursday.